Good morning. Welcome to The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley and this is the podcast that gets you up to speed every morning with the news that you need to know. It is Monday the 4th of May and in today's briefing, we're going to find out about the second wave because as we roll back parts of the lockdown, we're constantly warned about the danger of the second wave. Things are slow, things are cautious because we don't want a second wave. And we will have a second wave if we don't take this very slowly and very Mm. carefully. So today on The Briefing, what is the second wave exactly and how worried about it should you be? Before we get into that, let's get into all the other big news of the day. And I'm joined by Annika Smethurst in Canberra. Are things opening up there, Annika? More people are getting out. The queue at Bunnings was pretty big on the weekend, but we've never had some of the restrictions other states have had. We've always been able to visit a few more people than, say, if you're in Sydney or Melbourne. So here here in the bubble, it hasn't been as serious as perhaps the rest of the country. All right. Well, let's get into the other big stories. Here we go. Many Australians are still on the fence about whether to download the COVID Safe app, but 17 of the country's top cyber experts have found there's no risk that it can be hacked. And of course, we believe them, Tom. (laughs) This morning, more than 4.3 million Australians have put the app on their phone. Health Minister Greg Hunt claims the government is a week ahead of where it wants to be. Yeah, but I think they want to be a lot further because Scott Morrison uh, has been saying uh, we won't get that early mark that he hinted at on Friday unless more of us download the app. This is a critical issue for National Cabinet when it comes to making decisions next Friday about how restrictions can be eased. Yeah, as we said there, the uh, number of people that have downloaded the app is 4.3 million, but the government really is hoping that that will go up by at least another 2 million. And they're saying that if you want to get out, tell your mates to download it. Yeah, they're really putting the heavy on Australians, um, you know, coming out on Friday saying we're going to wind back restrictions a week early, but we're not exactly going to tell you what those wine backs will be, but download the app and they might be bigger and, you know, dangling, especially the carrot of recreational sport, which I think will be important to a lot of people. Do you think that pressure is going to work? I think traditionally Australians hate being told what to do. So if you go too far, I think there's a risk that it might be a bit of a, a hit back about it. But look, so far people are doing the right thing. But what's more important is making sure you have it running properly, you know, have it in the background, keep your Bluetooth on. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how many people download this thing. And the federal government's looking at a special exemption allowing international uni students to come here despite our border lockdown as some campuses get ready to reopen in the coming weeks. Yeah, Education Minister Dan Tehan says it's something they'll be considering uh, as foreign students alone create up to 250,000 jobs each year. Now, that's around 40% of the sector's annual income comes from overseas. To put this in perspective, there were more than 442,000 international students studying in Australia in 2019. Yeah, it's one of our nation's biggest exports, so clearly something I want to kickstart again. There's been a a broader tussle, it seems, about education. Annika Dan Tian said that uh, basically the Victorian Premier was showing a lack of leadership for not sending school students back to school and then back down from that statement yesterday. Is there a bit of tension brewing there? Look, he withdrew that statement yesterday after comments he said on insiders. He said he was drawn to say that after frustration about the Victorian education system. Uh, They're refusing to reopen schools at the moment. They're not doing uh, what New South Wales is doing, for instance, going back one day a week. Uh, And the federal government is starting to get a bit stressed about this, suggesting that perhaps the impact on a child's education uh, might be huge if we don't get kids back into the classroom. And at the core of that, is that about the the importance of 
education in driving our economy and freeing up parents from homeschooling, getting this university international student sector going again. Is that what that's really about? Look, I don't know about you, Tom, but parents I talk to are desperate to get their kids back into school, but of course they want to do it when it's safe. So that really does come down to um, what's happening in different states. Uh, But there is evidence out there that kids have different sort of rates of contraction of this virus. Even though it's new, that's what the early evidence seems to be saying. Right, in a photo of a well-known former North Melbourne coach, Dean Laidley, uh, wearing a wig and makeup inside a police station has been published on the front page of today's Herald Sun in Melbourne. Yeah, these pictures are believed to have been taken on the weekend when the 53-year-old was arrested and hit with several charges, including stalking. His lawyers described the circulation of this picture as disgraceful and Liberty Victoria has tweeted that it's a deplorable uh, breach of privacy. Professional Standards Command within the police will investigate how they were leaked and some media organisations have chosen not to publish the photos which are circulating on social media. And a class action is being launched for thousands of Aussie travellers who've been offered a voucher instead of a cash refund for trips cancelled by coronavirus. Slater and Gordon says they should have a choice to get their money back. It's going after big names, including Flight Centre, Qantas and Virgin. Yeah, it seems a lot of people aren't happy. The consumer watchdog's gotten over 6,000 reports about travel disruptions caused by COVID-19. And there is some hope for a win after Flight Centre gave into pressure and agreed to stop charging charging cancellation fees of up to $300 a pop. Jane McIntosh runs a Facebook group with more than 6,000 unhappy customers and she says it's a big relief. It's been very stressful for a lot of people and I'm just glad for those people that hopefully the stress will be over. There's a lot of people who swear that they will never use them again. Yeah, it's a tricky time for anyone with tickets to sporting events, live music events, obviously travel Um, because obviously people need the money back if these trips aren't going to happen or these concerts aren't going to happen, but the operators are often under massive financial pressure as well. Yeah, and you can understand why people might not want vouchers given there's no date when these things might actually go ahead. But as you say, everybody's feeling the pinch during the coronavirus. All right, it's time to move on to the briefing. Annika, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Tom. You're listening to The Briefing. Now, as we slowly get our freedoms back, yes... We are constantly being warned at the same time about a second wave of COVID-19 infections. Things are slow, things are cautious because we don't want a second wave. The potential for uh, a late wave, uh, second wave for some countries um, will be there unless we do the uh, physical distancing. And we will have a second wave if we don't take this very slowly and very Mm. carefully. Okay, so you hear the warnings there. How seriously should we take that threat of a second wave? That is our briefing topic. Hello, Jan Fran. Hello, Tom. Yeah, I think that's a question that we're going to be asking ourselves in the coming weeks because what we've seen from other countries that successfully contained the virus or were thought to have successfully contained the virus, uh, and Japan and Singapore are a really good example of these, is they went really hard, really fast, quite early. It looked like the virus was contained in certain parts of the country. And then a few months later, they ended up seeing a second wave of infections um, uh, breaking out again in certain parts of the country. So that's something that we're kind of going to have to consider here in Australia as well as we continue to relax restrictions. The second half of this topic is really about if you do see new outbreaks after relaxing restrictions, what do you do? How do you target them? How do you treat them? Do we have to bring back some of those measures that we'd already relaxed? All right, well, let's get more information about the real threat of a second wave. 
Dr. Nick Geard joins us. He's a computational epidemiologist from the University of Melbourne. Dr. Nick, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Uh, no problem. How worried do you think we should be about a second wave? Uh, look, as we start to think about relaxing and easing some of the restrictions that we've had on uh, sort of activity at the moment, I guess that's uh, the threat that looms. We've, we've done a really good job in Australia of keeping control of the first wave of, of COVID and we really want to avoid seeing um, a resurgence in cases. Japan and Singapore both had second waves. Why did that happen and what can we do here to avoid that happening in Australia? Every country has its own set of circumstances, I guess. And and, uh, in Singapore, they did have very good contact tracing, very good detection of cases early on in the outbreak. Um, What led to their second wave was uh, largely centred around um, dormitories housing foreign workers in the country and these are sort of um, high-density residential accommodation, and we know that having lots of adults in confined spaces together, much like cruise ships, is ideal circumstances for, for the disease to spread. So a lot of their outbreaks have been centred around that particular population. In Japan, it was a little bit different. So uh, Japan, again, had a good success early on in the outbreak in containing transmission. In particular, the second wave has been focused around the northern province of Hokkaido, and there they, I guess, got a little bit relaxed a little bit too soon. There was some um, sort of economic pushback against the restrictions, particularly when it looked like they did have the situation under control. So they relaxed those restrictions. There was some you know, more movement of people. There was a long weekend where there was a lot of mixing and everything. And they did see a, you know, a huge spike in cases again after that. So I guess that's the, that's the, the sort of the lessons there are from Singapore that, we really are only as, as well protected as a population as, as some of those most sort of vulnerable subpopulations. And in Japan, that we really do need to make sure that we have sufficient control before we go about relaxing those, um, those restrictions on move. Nick, you just talked us through the reasons for the second wave in Japan and Singapore. But how bad have those second waves really been? It hasn't put them in a situation like Italy or the US, has it? Um, no, at, to date they haven't grown to the same extent as the um, the uncontrolled outbreaks that we saw in Europe earlier in the year. And this is largely because there's a greater awareness now of what the risks are and what the appropriate response is to contain those second waves. So it's a little different, I guess, to um, you know thinking back to the 1918 um, influenza outbreak. There, the second wave was considerably larger than the first wave, and it was responsible for the, the greatest number of cases and, and deaths. That uh, was a very different time, very different situation. We know a lot more now about um, controlling these types of outbreaks. And so I think a second wave, we wouldn't expect it to necessarily be worse. It certainly could be if we lost control. But I think a second wave would be quite damaging economically and, and, and sort of psychologically for, for a country to face. Is some level of second wave inevitable and manageable? Uh, we ho- it's very much hoping that a second wave would be manageable. We certainly know that this is an infection that can lurk unseen in the population. So some people who are infected don't necessarily show symptoms of disease. That says that even if we have gone some period of time without seeing any cases, it's difficult to guarantee that there is no longer any infection in the population. And so we would expect as we start to relax these restrictions that there might be small localised outbreaks occurring. And I guess the aim is to really get on top of those as quickly as possible before they um, spread and become larger problems. Do you see us in a good position to be able to manage a second wave if one was to break out in Australia? Do we have enough yeah, contact tracing? Do we have, um, you know, testing. enough testing going on? 
Yeah, look, Australia has a number of um, advantages. Obviously, we're, we're an island nation, so we have more control over our borders than, than some other countries do, um, which can slow down the rate of um, new cases arriving from outside. You know, thus far, we have had very good compliance with the social distancing measures. That's what's allowed us to get control of community transmission. You're right, it really is. It's the testing and tracing that will be key to maintaining control as we start to get back to normal life. We need to, to test broadly across the population so that we can identify any new cases that do occur as quickly as possible. And then the, the contact tracing is, is what allows us to, you know, once we find one of those cases, find out who else in the population might be infected and, and um, uh, you know, get them isolated so that they, we limit the spread as quickly as possible. So our politicians are currently making, uh, I guess, complex decisions, trading off the risk of starting, you know, a second wave of infections and considering that against the, the economic implications of, of not winding back, you know, any particular measure. So which measures are going to create the most risk of a second wave of infections? Sure. I think if you look at uh, the epidemiology of the disease to date, uh, what we've seen is that it transmits most readily amongst adults in uh, confined places for durations of time. So I think any sort of activity that involves large groups of adults indoors together is going to be something that's going to be uh, slower to unwind. So you know those things like you know music festivals and concerts are likely going to be um, slower to come back. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of attention focused on restarting those activities that are perceived as more essential to the economy, but perhaps lower risk in terms of uh, disease transmission. Nick, we are moving into winter. Uh, You know, we have been at home for almost two months now. I think Australians are probably ready to get out there and and mingle with people IRL in real life. If there was one thing that you want Australians to to keep in mind or to take away from um, this chat, what is it? I think it's just to remember that the sort of the sacrifices that we have made in terms of our lives are what has allowed us to get to this point of being in control of transmission at the moment. But to remember that that's quite a fragile control that could be unwound really, really quickly if a further outbreak were to take off. You know, we know that the that the restrictions do um, come with a cost, but I think if we were to relax, see a second wave and have to impose those restrictions again, I think that would be both, you know, even more disruptive and, and quite demotivating. So I think this recognition that we're in it for the long haul and that it's a slow and steady process towards getting back to normal is, you know, is really important. What I really wanted to ask there was, will the ski resorts open? Will we be having big upright ski parties? <laughs> the really big important questions, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I thought it was all about golf in Victoria, at least. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just yeah. happy to see my mum. That's that's where I'm at. With no, all this. I want to go skiing. I want to be surrounded by people drinking after a day of skiing. Um, is it going to happen or not, Nick? Yeah, look, I, I think you know you might be safe out there on the ski fields. I think what happens at the end of the day might be an entirely different question. So there is going to be that tricky balance, I think. All right, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. No worries, a pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Nick Geard there, a computational epidemiologist. Um, very fancy title there for somebody that uses computers to track diseases uh, from, <laughs> from the University of Melbourne. Yeah, so interesting stuff there. I think, you know, a big key to managing the second wave is these capabilities to trace. So that's where the app comes in, trace cases, um, and also respond to local outbreaks and mass testing. So I think we've been positioning quite well for that. Yeah, Testing, tracing, quarantine.
We need to get those things under wrap, I think. But look, the other element is, I think, individual behaviour. We're moving very slowly here. Yes, we all want to be out there as soon as possible. Yes, we're relaxing some laws. But just take it easy. Do the right thing. See two people. Go home. Very nice. All right, that's it for today's show. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Jan, getting married or not getting married in the time of corona. If you'd had your wedding planned during this time, would you have postponed it or would you have just done it with five people on a Zoom call? I would have been bloody stoked. I would have eloped because that guest list was a nightmare. So I would have. Just so you had twenty six people at your wedding. <laughs> I was one of them. That's you, what I'm saying. The you would have loved to have cut. It, <laughs> you would have loved to cut me out and just have five people, and I could have zoomed in. Yeah, totally. I think I would have been happy with it, but I'm probably an outlier there. Yeah. Well, let's see how everyone else feels. We're going to have some really interesting stories about how people have handled weddings in the time of Corona on tomorrow's episode of the briefing. Download it on the Podcast One Australia app or wherever else you normally get your podcasts. Catch you tomorrow. Bye bye. A Podcast One production.